Docile or docile? Mm. That's the question. Okay, continue. <laughs> Which is it? I don't know. Just, just continue. Okay. In the beginning of the history of experimental observation or any other kind of observation on scientific things, it's intuition. It's intuition. Which is really based on just experience with everyday objects that suggest reasonable explanations for things. Welcome to Two Shrinks Pod. This is a podcast about psychology. I'm Hunter Morke. And I'm Amy Donaldson. We're both psychologists and I work with people who are medically unwell, usually cancer patients, while Amy works mainly with children and adolescents. This pod is all about understanding psychological problems, how they present, what theories we have to explain them, and what we really like to talk about in this pod is how psychologists understand and go about treating problems. Really what we want to do is to pull back the curtain into how psychologists work. On the show today, it's our penultimate episode of our personality disorder series. Woohoo! We're going to be talking about dependent personality disorder. Last episode, we talked about avoidant personality disorder, which is essentially a pervasive social anxiety. And next episode, we are going to be talking about obsessive compulsive personality disorder, which is what uh, we and many other people think many psychologists have. <laughs> and uh, it's when someone is uh, preoccupied with order and rules and is just generally rigid. Amy Donaldson. <laughs> I think actually you scored higher on that one. <laughs> Moving on. <laughs> Today, we're going to talk about dependent personality disorder, which is when someone is excessively dependent on others. So... You might know someone who is passive in relationships. They avoid conflict or take the blame whenever it happens. They live their life for others and are happy, seemingly happy when others are happy. This is someone that struggles to make decisions on their own without advice, even just everyday decisions, and they struggle to take the initiative. As a result, they can be quite frustrating. And in relationships, they can often smother their partners or smother their children by being clingy or trying to please them, and they can be devastated when they're left alone. So that kind of gives you a snapshot of dependent personality. Amy is going to go through the DSM criteria in a minute. And then I'm going to talk about how this presents at sort of perhaps a less disordered level, sort of at the trait level. What we're going to do then is Amy's going to talk about issues in diagnosing this from other disorders. And then we're going to have a good long chat about different theories that explain this disorder. So I'm going to talk about psychodynamic and cognitive theories. Amy's going to talk about, surprise, surprise, interpersonal theories (laughs) and uh, evolutionary and neuro approaches. And then we're going to, as we do always, finish up with a discussion on how you would work with this personality disorder in therapy. Mm-hmm. And then we will be finishing up, as usual, with things we came across uh, segment right at the end. But before we get started, what we would like to say is we want you to get in contact with us if you've got any feedback or comments about the show. We can see that the Personality Disorders series has been very, very popular and we've had occasionally some questions. If you do want to get in contact with us, our email is twoshrinkspod at gmail.com or you can message us on Twitter. Our handle is at twoshrinkspod. Also, make sure you check out the links that we put in the show descriptions if you're wanting to know more about each topic. We always put our links to uh, the things we came across articles but also to the main topics that we talk about in each show. We've also been keeping our website updated where you can search for podcast episodes by number, but also by topic. So you might have a clinical case coming up 
or you might have an essay or you might have an exam or a talk and you might need to find, for example, a podcast on borderline personality or on fear of flying or whatever. Um, attachment. Or attachment, which is every episode. Um, <laughs> you can go to our website and have a look and find and have a look at the podcast episodes by topic, which is really quite useful. And finally, if you like the show, please rate and review the show in Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to the show. But this is particularly for those listening in the United Kingdom and also in Canada. We have a number, considerable number of Australian listeners and American listeners. Go you guys. Mm-hmm. But we'd love more listeners in other parts of the world. So rating and reviewing the show really helps people find the show. Or simply just telling someone about the show or even uh, retweeting or sharing the link to the show on your social media page really helps people learn about the show. So that's all the housekeeping. So should we get started? Sounds good. All right. So Amy, you're going to take us through the DSM criteria? So in terms of the diagnostic criteria, the DSM-5 specifies a range of different symptoms that someone might have. What it describes is a pervasive and excessive need to be taken care of that leads to submissive and clinging behaviour and fears of separation, beginning by early adulthood and present in a variety of contexts. So it can include five or more of the following symptoms. I'm going to go through what they look like at a disordered level and then I'll hand over to Hunter to talk about what a trait version of this might sound like. Uh, The first one is that they have difficulty making everyday decisions without an excessive amount of advice and reassurance from others. Second, they need others to assume responsibility for most major areas of their life. They have difficulty expressing disagreement with others because of a fear of loss of support or approval. They might have difficulty initiating projects or doing things on his or her own, and that's because of a lack of self-confidence in judgment or abilities rather than a lack of motivation or not having the energy to do it. They go to excessive lengths to obtain nurturance and support from others to the point of volunteering to do things that are unpleasant. So this can be quite extreme, willing to do things that are sort of degrading or uncomfortable or painful to obtain that support from other people. They feel uncomfortable or helpless when alone because of exaggerated fears of being unable to care for themselves. They urgently seek another relationship as a source of care and support when a close relationship ends. And the last criteria is that they're unrealistically preoccupied with fears of being left to take care of him or herself. Yeah, it's an interesting set of criteria, I reckon. Mm. And what my thoughts were when I was reading about this was that, like, I could think of a lot of people who would have, you know, one or two of these. Yeah. But my thought was that five of the eight is actually quite a high bar. Absolutely. Yeah. If that kind of makes sense. Compared to some of the other ones where I guess I've seen more people walk through the door who have had cluster of things where you sort of question about a personality disorder. This one, I don't, I'm not sure that I've actually worked with anyone who... Has, would have met all of the criteria no, for this one. No, I've definitely come across people with a number of them mm. or, or what I call a cluster C personality. Yeah. But the prevalence is like 0.5 to 0.6 is what okay. the DSM yeah. says, which is quite low, whereas avoiding personality sort of would, in the previous one was about 2.6, mm. 2.3%, yeah. I think. And I wonder also about the sort of help-seeking behaviour in this group about whether that would contribute to whether or not we've Met well, anyone as well. Yeah, that's right. Well, if they've got a social world and take, they don't present. So yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's quite interesting. So, so with each of these symptoms, you can think about them as existing on a spectrum. We can <laughs> have a little, some, or a lot of it. Right. When you've only got like a little or some of it, that's the personality style rather mm-hmm. than the disorder level. So, what 
I think it's always useful is to think about like, well, what's the personality style versus the personality disorder level of each of these symptoms? So there was the excessively asking for advice for everyday decisions. That would be the sort of level. And the style, someone with a style would seek out opinions but make decisions on their own analysis, mm. right? This requirement for others taking responsibility for a large part of their life, like the, the disorder level, the style would actually just be comforted by the support of others but can perform adequately without the support of mm. others, right? So there, there is this level of independence. The style prefers interpersonal harmony and is able to speak up if needed, while obviously the disorder level is just not able to do that. Yeah. They subordinate their own feelings and just agrees because they fear separation. Can't tolerate the yeah. discomfort. Yeah. No. And then they, the style, instead of lacking the confidence to start new projects, the style is actually just able to function by themselves, but prefers working in close proximity. So mm-hmm. you kind of start to get this feeling of like this individual that has this flavour of the dependence yeah. still has a measure of independence. If that that sort of sense. preference for other people's company and support rather than and can't function like without a, it. Like a need. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The disordered person would obviously like, Amy, you said to sort of take on unpleasant tasks. A star would be considerate and occasionally self-sacrificing. Mm-hmm. The disordered fears being unable to cope if alone, whereas the style prefers the social company, mm. but can still have solitude, still enjoy solitude. And on this thing about relationships ending, to sort of level you seek out a new partner mm-hmm. straight away, whereas the style wouldn't seek it out immediately. They, they don't want to merge with another, but they are nostalgic for yeah. like the lost intimacy. Mm. And then the final one, the style would enjoy the affection from others as expressed through thoughtfulness and are not terrified of being abandoned. Mm-hmm. Like the disordered person. Mm. I mean, what, what strikes me in that, in just this criteria, is the overlap that I sort of see with borderline yep. PD. Yeah. You know, there's that fear of abandonment, that kind of thing. Yeah. And I had a bit of a look in the DSM about there's usually a section that's other disorders to consider or how you know that this is different from other disorders. Yeah. And for that same reason, I thought, okay, let's have a look at this and see how you would actually tease that apart. And so they highlight that there is a lot of overlap with a range of different disorders. So you need to separate it from dependency that arises from another disorder. So a lot of mental health conditions or physical health conditions can mean that you're more dependent on someone else Mm -hmm. or that you seek that kind of reassurance. So for example, someone with OCD might seek reassurance from their partner that they've checked the lock on the front door enough times or someone with agoraphobia might need support to be able to leave the house someone with depression might need help with self-care all of those things are a part of the disorder rather than being the core of it Mm. they're kind of the effects of the disorder Yeah, yeah, yeah yeah and then in terms of personality disorders The feeling seems to be the same, but the behaviour and the response is different. So whereas both borderline and dependent PD share this fear of abandonment, the response to abandonment is different. So someone with BPD is likely to be angry, demanding, feel kind of emotionally empty Mm -hmm. by this, whereas someone with a dependent personality tends to respond by submitting and appeasing and seeking a new relationship. Mm -hmm. And then there's also the difference in emotional intensity that with BPD it's far higher in terms of the intensity of emotions and the variability of emotions. Yeah, sort of more there's more dysregulation as we sort of yeah. talked about in like the DBT 
model of borderline. Absolutely. And then it's also it also overlaps with histrionic in that both share a need for reassurance yeah. and care, but they achieve it in different ways. So whereas someone with histrionic PD might make kind of active demands for attention, they're quite flamboyant. Mm. Someone with dependent PD will be kind of self-effacing and submissive and mm. kind of mm. elicit it that way. And then the last one that there's a big overlap with is avoidant, which we spoke about last week. Uh, so they both share feelings of inadequacy, need for reassurance and hypersensitivity, but people who are avoidant withdraw, whereas dependent people seek and maintain relationships. Mm. So it's kind of, yeah, same feeling, different way of getting that feeling met. Yeah, so like, so what is interesting about all that is that you can kind of get a spectrum of behaviour as mm. kind of the same core problem, mm-hmm. but the the response to it is different for each, each of the PDs. Yeah. Borderline acts up gets very, very angry, is very, very afraid mm. and kind of activates, whereas the whereas the on the other end of the spectrum, the dependent is overly submissive yeah. and that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's kind of seesaw. Yeah, was, kind of and, and so, yeah. So, so the same thing with histrionic, but yeah. sort of it, perhaps it's it's less sort of angry and emotionally intense, mm. but more sort of theatrical, Yeah. whereas the, the dependent would be, I guess, perhaps more uh, conventional yeah. and kind of pleasing mm. and that kind of stuff. Yeah. Whereas the and then the avoidant pulls away and the dependent kind of approaches. Yeah. That kind of thing. Yeah. I mean I'm sort of making that don't... up on the fly, but I think you can kind of like yeah. we as psychologists like to think in a spectrum or I, I certainly try mm. and do. Yeah, definitely. And and that's often a useful way of trying to figuring out like what's going on. And then also and where that is useful in therapy is that you kind of go, oh, what's the spectrum? Mm. And how can I get someone more towards uh, the middle? More towards the middle, yeah. right? So I always say to my clients, like, if you standing on a seesaw, it's yeah. easy to stand on one end of the seesaw than the other, or, than the then. other, and so to stand in the middle is difficult. So absolutely, yeah. And I feel like going through some of those descriptions and talking about why someone would respond also gives you a kind of avenue therapy-wise as well, because mm-hmm. you kind of go, okay, what is the function of this? Like it's important to know the emotion, but then also how does being submissive or whatever, what that does that actually serve? It's obviously been adaptive mm. at some point. It's yeah. just yeah, yeah. And, then, the and, then you, and then you can work out like perhaps where did that come from? Yeah. And then once you've kind of got those two pieces of the puzzle, yeah. you can have some very interesting discussions with people. And with that, we've, you know, essentially summarised the entire pod. <laughs> Done. Done. <laughs> See you, everyone. <laughs> and uh, things we came across. No, um, so I, I just had a couple little, one other note, which mm. was that the gender breakdown, there was a suggestion in the DSM that it's more frequent in females, mm. but some other studies suggest that it's equal male and female. What's yeah. interesting is they didn't quote figures in the DSM. Yeah. Like, yeah, whereas usually they do. Yeah. And then the other note that I had was that about cultural specificity. Mm. So there are, in comparison to Western culture yeah. or American culture, because DSM's American-based, mm. there's many cultures that where they place an emphasis on being polite, deferential. Yeah, and absolutely. And so you kind of need to tease that out. Yeah. Because, you know, you might see someone from, like, say, uh, Japan's the one mm. that comes to my mind. Yeah. That would just perhaps just be the way that you are in that culture and mm. you would just need to check that out. Yeah. A, a reasonable history would kind of pick that up straight yeah, away. absolutely. So. so shall we move on to theory? Yep. I think you're going to kick us off with psychodynamic. Okay, so I'm going to do psychodynamic. Right off the bat, I'm going to say <laughs> I do not 
ascribe to these theories. And yeah, I think I think that's fair. I had a, a skim of, of this section and I share you. I share your perspective. And uh, Amy was the subject of multiple ranting texts about psychodynamic theorists being fools and breast obsessed last night uh, when I was preparing for the pod. And and if you want to get a real kick out of life, just look up Freud's lectures. They they really make you think that he's a bit mad. Let's not go there. Okay. (laughs) So classical psychoanalytic theory sees dependent personality as being characterised by fixation during the oral stage of psychosexual development. Oh, I'm, sorry. <laughs> I'm not going to go into psychosexual development theories, FYI. You Anyone don't who's to. done Psych 101 will be familiar. So, I mean, the, I think listening to this theory, this section, I think you can move past some of the more objectionable and perhaps like ye olde ways mm. of looking at the world and take in some of the patterns of behavior yep. is what I would say. Yep. And actually what's what's interesting is like there's all this stuff about oral fixation in the breast mm-hmm. and, and breastfeeding. And it reminds me a lot of early scientists when they would they would look at things in the world mm. and see what their function was. And then when they were trying to figure out what was going on in the body, when yep. they were trying to figure out the human body, mm. they go, oh, that thing's kidney shaped in yeah. the world, so that and that has this function. So maybe so the kidney maybe does the this same. thing. Like, yeah. It just, yeah. but and it just reminds kind of me of that piecing together things. And yeah, in this really kind of nonsensical way, but mm. undeveloped way, I guess. Okay, so here we go. So there's a stage of oral stage of psychosexual development, and then you can get fixation. Fixation can occur because of indulgence. And that leads you to being oral receptive or frustration. And that leads you to oral sadistic traits. So the example that was given was that, um, so a mother is who is always available to nurse their child or to, to feed their child breastfeed, this results in the child an optimistic spirit that's not easily shaken, right? So basically they're happy. They, they you know, they... Expect their needs to be taken care yeah, of. Yeah, yeah. And their needs are taken care of and that mm. makes them, you know, positive about the world, which mm-hmm. is good, a good thing. But the problem with that is that this can result in the child becoming passive and inactive. You know, the, the mum is always there to meet their needs. And so this sort of theory kind of leads to this thing of like, well, dependent personality are basically adults who are never weaned. Essentially, they're never weaned and they're helpless as mm. a result is yeah. the kind of overall sort of bit that I took from it. Oral frustration. Okay. So this is thought to result in ambivalence between hunger and hostility. So basically this ambivalence to being nursed Mm. or to bite essentially. Is it kind of hangry? Yeah, I don't know. Mm. I'm I'm not going to go into (laughs) it. My favourite quote of the whole section. Mm. Later psychoanalytic thinkers generalised Abram's basic thesis beyond the nipple. (laughs) (laughs) Thank God for that. Oh, God. Okay. So... In this generalisation beyond the nibble, they <laughs> suggested that... I'm just going to push through. I'm just going to push, push through. through. Um, basically, it was, it was actually kind of a reasonable thing, which is suggesting that the child identifies with the caretaker, mm-hmm. right? So they see the caretaker as taking care of others. Mm-hmm. There's a desire to take care of others. And so they sort of internalise that. And as a result, they learn to not take care of themselves. Because okay. like yep. you see a lot of caretakers who are just terrible looking after mm. themselves, yeah. right? So, so the... You know, there is some kind of interesting aspects. Mm. They talk about um, being psychoanalytic. They always talk about defense mechanisms. 
Interjection, so which is essentially mean to put inside. So dependents feel inadequate, incompetent, lack skills, feel worthless. So they seek out and incorporate a stronger, more competent individual. So essentially the dependent borrows in exchange for willingness to serve another. So they become, the dependent becomes like their partner Mm -hmm. whose identity and needs become their own. So they're putting inside another person yeah. essentially a sort um, of i'm nothing without you yeah and then they idolize their partners in much the same way that children idolize their parents if you've got young children they they think that, that you know everything and you are all loving and so essentially dependents don't grow out of that mm. kind of phase so basically if this amazing person loves me then i have worth mm-hmm. and so if they're lost then the dependent loses part of their identity yeah. essentially makes so sense catastrophic kind of failure also denial seems to be kind of a big coping uh, mechanism or defense mechanism they deny that the world's hostile which allows them to be childlike in the way that they act and naively cope they also deny their own hostile impulses so anger is threatening to them Mm -hmm. and if the sweet dependent can be angry well that means others could be Mm -hmm. right and that would shatter their illusion of safety and security, you know, as a final thought, dependents probably, because they probably don't express it, they probably have this massive buildup of anger mm. inside, that kind of stuff. Yeah. So, psychologic done. <laughs> Let's move on to something scientific. Yeah, I've never seen you so eager to, to move on to the next. I, I have enjoyed getting to know a little bit of psychodynamic theory. Yeah, but this up one. Up until this one. Yeah, yeah. I feel like this one's a particular struggle. Yeah, although yeah. you listen back to the histrionic pod, you can hear Amy eye-rolling as I yeah. talk about <laughs> psychodynamic theories and yeah. the wandering boom. Yeah. <laughs> histrionic PD. I do love that. Continue. <laughs> okay, so we're moving on to interpersonal. Yeah. These guys sort of kicked off in the 40s and 50s. Is it, is it Benjamin again? <laughs> Benjamin's going to come up soon. That's a girl. But, yeah. yeah, but at first we have Harry Stack Sullivan which I find quite a satisfying name to say, and Timothy Leary. Less satisfying. Less satisfying. Uh, So for Leary, he described a docile, dependent personality. Uh, This personality could range from someone who was trusting and conforming through to the helplessly dependent that we're kind of describing with dependent PD. So he really emphasised that spectrum of interpersonal dependence. So interpersonally, someone with dependent PD can be seen by friends as generous and thoughtful. They can be overly apologetic and obsequious. But by submitting to other people, they then relinquish control of their lives to people they believe are more competent than themselves. Mm-hmm. So their submissiveness also provokes a complementary interpersonal response from other people. So by appearing weak and submissive, other people want to nurture them, protect them and want to exhibit strength and confidence. Yeah. yeah, to show that they're different and capable from that person. Yeah. So underneath the friendliness, though, is an intense need for acceptance. So when times are stressful, this can emerge as helplessness and clinging behaviour to ensure people close to them remain protective. So it's kind of got that desperation flavour to it. If a relationship is ending, they may appear de- depressed, meek and become increasingly self-sacrificing and they kind of bolster the position of their partner in doing so that partner then becomes even more dominant and superior than what they were before yeah and they might also use childlike mannerisms and appear to be pleading for help so it keeps on shifting that dynamic and makes it more extreme Mm. 
In childhood, people who go on to develop dependent PD are likely to have been overprotected by their parents. Their parents discouraged autonomy and were over-nurturing, so that kind of helicopter parent vibe. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, constantly watching for danger and responding to their needs. Yeah, like rather than uh, a parent who sort of lets a child fail by themselves Mm. and sort of trusts the child, yeah. Yeah. So their attachment is likely to be preoccupied as they're not able to develop independently. So as the parent kind of monitors them constantly and provides what they need, they don't need to explore the environment for themselves or build skills. So development can be delayed. So this can span all sorts of different areas, even things like talking and things like that. Because if your needs are instantly met, you don't need to learn how to ask Mm. for help. Yeah, because often you see children, you could start to see parents get frustrated with child's like, no, you can talk, mm. you know, you're just being lazy, like, because they're getting what they need by grunting or kind yeah. of pointing or getting away with, like, saying baby talk. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that kind of thing. Yeah. So then as they grow up, the parents continue to monitor and hover and they assume from this perspective that it's out of a fear of, the parent has a fear of losing their baby. And so they're anxious about normal challenges. So they display anxiety about, say, their child learning how to ride a bike or do something that might have a little bit of risk to it, but that you kind of need trial and error to learn how to do. They continue to parent their child as if they're younger than they are. So they do things like carry them after they can walk, they spoon feed them after after they're able to do it themselves. And a lot of children kind of just go with it. They kind of enjoy the intensified attention because mm. yeah, it's kind of comforting yeah. to have that. This is all, all you've ever known, really. Exactly, yeah. Dependent PD can also emerge from childhood events like illnesses or family disruption. So parents might become hypervigilant about their child's well-being because something's happened. So some sort of severe illness in childhood or things like that that's yeah. meant that they had to monitor them, but then that pattern continues yeah. on. I mean, you could you could see like a, a child that's had cancer, for example, exactly. would be a, a prime, yeah. prime example for that. Yeah. And although the parenting often contributes to the disorder, sibling relationships can create a similar pattern. So if there's an older sibling who's dominant and more competent and kind of talks down to their sibling or kind of says you can't do that and constantly reinforces that behaviour or is kind of aggressive or threatening, that can create a similar similar dynamic. And then as they enter school, then the comparisons with their peers can intensify the early patterns. So they're kind of underdeveloped, they enter school and their peers are more competent than they are mm. and that just reinforces the same thing. Yeah, and like what we were talking about with the avoidant personality last time, like you could imagine a, a young... Hmm. physically underdeveloped child yeah. compared to the, the norm in the class hmm. and that potentially could feel incompetent. Yeah, as, absolutely. Yeah, and, uh, yeah, and fit into that pattern. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And then there's some more recent work by Benjamin which kind of talks about how this PD begins with warmth and care and attention and normal attachment in infancy a bit like you were talking about it starts off like that Mm. but then it becomes problematic when the parent doesn't allow the child to grow and develop separately so they provide what benjamin refers to as relentless nurturance which i quite liked as a term Mm. um Mm. that then becomes controlling and this elicits submission and blames autonomy so independence then feels like something that 
provokes guilt. I shouldn't be independent. You know, it's not acceptable to be independent. Mm, mm, mm. Yeah. So that's kind of the interpersonal perspective in a nutshell. Yeah, and that fits quite nicely with the cognitive theories. Mm -hmm. And they pick up with this idea of that the interpersonal strategy that the dependent has starts to impact on self-image and cognitive development, Mm -hmm. right? So if you act helpless trying to get care and protection, then at some level you have to believe that you're helpless Mm. or you probably will start to believe that you're helpless, right? Internally, they describe themselves as weak, fragile, inadequate, incompetent. But like said in Dynamic, they use denial and they don't look deeply into themselves. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, they get distressed. And so this denial sort of develops into a broad cognitive style. And so they only really focus on the pleasantries of life, the pleasant elements Mm. of life, if that makes sense. So... They have these sort of self-schemas. So they've got positive ones and negative ones, right? So positive ones, they're considerate, they're thoughtful, they're cooperative. Mm -hmm. Being humble and self-effacing, you know, because they downplay achievements. And so, you know, this is quite positive. Like, Mm. you know, if you think about someone who was considerate and thoughtful and kind of, you know, didn't make too much of their achievements and stuff Mm. like that, you know, that's kind of praised and and valued within our society, right? And I feel like those kind of descriptions, they almost feel counterintuitive to the label dependent. Yeah. Like it it feels like someone who actually is sort of more in control of themselves. They're not kind of focused on their own needs there. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, it's kind of a disorder that I think could be quite hidden. Yeah. Like the stereotype in my head is of a... of a mother who looks after a large family mm. and who's quite good at that. Yeah, and okay. that's sort of praised and seen as a, yeah. a positive and yeah. people don't kind of consider that perhaps their needs aren't being met. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't know where I get that stereotype from, but I, that's the kind of thing you could sort of see sort of fits that self-sacrificing, mm. subjugating kind of ma- nature. So they might desire praise, but they don't like too much of it because that might then trigger them feeling like... Yeah they could be expected to be more independent than they are. Mm. Negative self-schemas, they have a number of conditional and instrumental beliefs. Okay, so I'll explain what that means. So according to Beck, they have a core belief. So Beck's a a theorist. And their core beliefs would be, um, you know, I'm completely helpless. I'm all alone, Mm -hmm. right? And they have conditional beliefs. So conditional beliefs help with the core beliefs. So if you feel a conditional belief, then you don't have to confront the negative core belief, if that makes sense, such as I can function only if I have access to someone competent. If I'm abandoned, I'll die. So this idea of if I'm not abandoned, Mm. I won't die. If I've got someone who's competent, then I'm not helpless, right? And so this is kind of this idea of it meets that need. Flipping back to this interpersonal style, they minimize their achievements and abilities Mm -hmm. and they magnify their incompetencies. So they seem naive or childlike to others. Interestingly, not be sophisticated cognitively. Yeah, which kind of fits with that stunted development kind of picture. Yeah, and then because of that, with that stunted development thing, people don't make demands on them. Mm. You can see this great kind of feedback loop going on all the entire time. So they don't learn coping skills beyond basic life. Skills, and so they gave some what I thought was quite a dated reference now, but you know they might not know how to do things like balance a checkbook, mm. right? <laughs> or you know, and they in extreme examples, they might not be able to hold down a job because they would require continual advice, yeah, or instruction. Those closer to normal, they might develop sort of a conditional belief like I must learn how to do such and such well if I'm to enjoy the safety and protection of this relationship. Mm. So you can see actually that would be quite a adaptive for Mm. someone and you can see a lot of people would have that 
on various like Absolutely. extents just yeah. in general life. So they perform for approval of others. The dependent wife who puts in long hours to further the career goals of the husband, mm-hmm. for example. Yeah. It wouldn't be cognitive theory without talking about cognitive distortions. The big one is dichotomous thinking. They're very, very black and white mm. thinking. So if you've ever seen a cognitive-based therapist, they'll talk about it. Like, mm, that thinking seems a bit black and white, doesn't mm. it? It seems a bit all or nothing. So basically they think I'm inherently inadequate and helpless or I must seek out someone who can handle the troubles of life in this dangerous world. So in that, you can see that they're overlooking their own strengths, their own agency, right? It's they, not I have some skills in this area, but this area I need yeah. some help. It's yeah. I'm totally inadequate. Yeah, I'm totally inadequate yep. and I, I, I need someone else to do it. So this leads to catastrophic thinking. So mm-hmm. it's another cognitive distortion. So catastrophic thinking is just how it sounds. They catastrophize about whatever it is. So for example, leads them to fear being alone because they can't cope. They especially catastrophize about relationships. If relationship ends, they're worthless or unlovable. Rather than perhaps say reframing going, well, the relationship ended. I wonder what my part in that was mm. and and using that as a opportunity for growth yeah. essentially you know so a therapist would likely have to introduce these shades of gray probably quite forcefully i'd say mm. because the core beliefs would be activated and they'd just probably shut down yeah if that makes sense not unlike the interpersonal thing mm. they Thoughts on how it developed. Like you said, a a parent who believes their child is in danger, even if the child is asleep, will be threatened by a child developing autonomy. Mm -hmm. So complex beliefs about it being good for a child to pick themselves up and learn from experiences would just be too risky for that parent. Yeah. Right? So rather beliefs like freedom is the enemy of safety or children can't be trusted to not hurt themselves Mm -hmm. or trusting my child will likely result in death. Like these are these like hard and fast rules. Yeah. So this is where parental anxiety is mm. a real problem. Absolutely. Right. And if you're an anxious parent and people have said that to you, mm. you it, it's really worth having a look at that and, you know, either doing some work on that by yourself or with a therapist because it can really play off mm. on on the upbringing of your children. Absolutely. Kind of thing, and the yeah. core beliefs, right. Because like the child learns extreme fear that's projected by the parents and so like they learn that the world is fearful Mm. and then they learn but particularly they learn that to trust in myself is danger yeah i can't trust my own instincts or my own emotions you know others must save me from myself Mm. you know i need mum to save me i need dad to save me Mm. that kind of thing on their cognitive style dependents don't look inward as i sort of said before you know they only have vague ideas about their self-identity and direction and they're just not that well developed right what was interesting is they develop fail to develop sophisticated judgments about what to do in their life. They mm-hmm. sort of miss this stage of cognitive development because others are making these decisions for them. So there's this great kind of passage around necessity being the mother of invention mm. and necessity is the mother of cognitive talents, mm. right? Particularly to those to do with planning. If you're going to plan to do something in your life, you often need to hold multiple plans in your mind, evaluate outcomes for yourself and others and yeah. things like that, right? And if you've never had to do that, mm. that's a really hard task to suddenly learn how to do as an adult. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Yeah, you kind of slowly develop that over childhood, ideally. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, try things out. See how things work. Yeah. Gradually take on bigger things. Yeah. And, you know, like even if it's like to do with building Lego Mm. or it's like working out how to do an assignment as a teenager or Mm. figuring out what uni courses to do, whatever it is, like you can sort of start to see pushing that onto 
a child first, like mm. might seem hard, but it's actually probably a good idea. Yeah. It helps them to develop those strategies themselves. Yeah. Yeah. And that kind of stuff. So persistent mothering means these skills never develop. It really should just be persistent parenting, yeah. really. Um, means these skills never develop in the child because really so someone else is doing it, right? Mm. What's interesting is they might actually do very well in a school environment. Mm. And this is because there's concrete expectations. Yeah. Yeah, right. There's so, a clear right, wrong. Yeah. Good grades means praise and affection. Mm-hmm. Good at sport means... You know, blah, 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 blah. They might get good grades. It might have been a teacher's pet, mm. right? And I was thinking about, for some reason, like, you know, Ned Flanders in The Simpsons. Yeah. You know, and this is he kind of comes across at, at some point where he's like seeking advice from Reverend Lovejoy mm. all the time, all the time, yeah. all the time. Yeah. You know, and this is dependence. Yeah, he might actually fit. I'm thinking about the kind of caring, amiable kind of way of being yeah. in the world. Yeah. And then the different points where you see his anxiety yeah. come to the surface. Yeah, yeah, right. I hadn't thought about it too deeply, but <laughs> but it, it, but the, the, yeah. I just remember this is sequence where, like, you know, he's he's suddenly asking Reverend Lovejoy all these questions, mm. and 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 Reverend Lovejoy is just like, oh, you know, all the major religions are kind of the same. Have <laughs> you checked out any of the other ones? Like, <laughs> so you know, when the situation's ambiguous as to what to do, they struggle. A dependent gets distressed, and they would, or potentially, would just flee it, mm. right? And they just lack this sophistication to weigh the pros and cons, you know, for fear of letting down others. They desire simplicity, and it's too overwhelming otherwise. So, mm. so that's kind of cognitive. Makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Mm. So the last one we're going to look at is evolutionary or neurological. So this perspective views dependent PD as a passive dependent interpersonal pattern, which is a mouthful. Say that three times quickly. <laughs> They rely on others to make life meaningful and deliberately undermine themselves to avoid independence from others. So just what you were talking about, that kind of it's threatening to be independent. So I better make sure that I don't do that. Mm. Uh, So someone with dependent PD is likely to arrange their life to ensure a constant supply of comfort and guidance. They seek an all-powerful hero who will save them and protect them. So that kind of idealised partner. Mm, which, which sounds so similar to the idealisation in borderline personality. Absolutely. Yeah, there are so many crossovers. And yeah. yeah. As we've spoken about already, people with this PD see themselves as inept. And so to cope with that, they seek instrumental surrogates. So stronger people who can go into the world for them. And then to bond these people with them, they maintain this sweet, naive disposition. Uh, This perspective really emphasises that their growth is stopped at the edge of childhood. So they're not children, but they're kind of just on that borderline bit of adulthood and Mm. childhood. They also emphasise the role of having a narrow attachment in childhood in terms of developing this disorder. So they speak about how if one person is the sole source of care, stimulation and survival, it makes sense that you become dependent on that person. So it's the lack of variety of experiences that contributes to this. Yeah, so you would think the example would be the mother who is overly involved Mm -hmm. with their child and the exclusion of everybody else. Yeah, exactly. And so they kind of speak about how, you know, it could occur in that sort of sense where, you know, one child's the favourite or something like that. Oh, yeah. But that it could also be because of a whole bunch of other factors. So like one of the parents being unwell or something like that, where then only one parent is the caregiver yeah. rather than both. Yeah. Or they use the example of a parent 
having being part of the military and going overseas. Mm. And then just one parent and child being left yeah. together. The other one that I thought of was around sort of parental mental illness. So things mm-hmm. like postnatal depression or anxiety yeah, or things like yeah. that. And about how that plays plays into that same dynamic of yeah. narrowing down the experience. Yeah, also like single parents. Yeah, well. absolutely. So the pattern of over-nurturance can also be elicited by childhood anxiety, especially when beginning to branch out into the world. So, for example, a child who develops intense separation anxiety, uh, that can then elicit an over-nurturing response from the parents, depending Mm -hmm. on how they respond. Mm -hmm. So with this perspective, it's not focused so much on infancy, but kind of all the things that can happen along the way Mm -hmm. that can send it off in a different direction. Yeah. Yeah. So as in the interpersonal perspective, this perspective focuses on the restriction of opportunities for exploration during development and then the ease of allowing someone else to take care of things. So when you're discouraged from trying something and provided with all that you need, independence is risky and unnecessary. Yeah. Yeah. And then in adolescence, the impact of this pattern on development means that young people developing this personality disorder are less mature and competent than their peers. So this reinforces their inferiority, leading them to seek comfort from those at home. So it kind of separates them from their peer group and sends them back running, to, running to the, parents, yeah. the parent who had been providing this intense nurturance all the way along. Yeah, and also I think about like that others others around them, it wasn't really mentioned in the chapter, but I think others around them would get frustrated. Yeah, and definitely. Then, and then that would feed into those beliefs around, oh, I'm, I am incompetent, yeah. I'm no good. Like, so Particularly you... in childhood and adolescence <clears throat> where there's less of that kind of, kids have less of that filter. Yeah. Yeah. But like even in a workplace, people mm. are like, oh, come on, man, like, yeah. you know how to do this. Yeah. Like, get on with it. Get on with it, get on with it. When they might not, they might not have the skills mm. or the confidence and then you've got someone who's frustrated yeah. and just feeds in. Just, yeah. Yeah, so this kind of pattern of, going into the world and having that reinforcing how they feel then sends them back home and then reinforces the message again that they're not capable, they need to be protected and they need to be protected by these people who have protected them. It's not they need to be protected by anyone, it's specific people that mm. they're attached to. Yeah. Yeah. So that's that's evolutionary. Yeah, right. It's kind of it's an interesting set of theories they all mm. very much overlap absolutely I mean, except for the lack of you know breast discussion in, <laughs> in all the other oh more i missed that paragraph oh, sorry. Really, yeah. um and and you can sort of already start to see how therapy wise you might want to kind of just it's about breaking that cycle mm. essentially yeah as opposed to some of like say borderline personality or do we talked about or antisocial personality where there's a lot more it's a lot more complicated mm. you know there's a lot more yeah. complex things going on yeah so. and a lot more blatantly harmful kind of things happening at the surface oh, yeah, to manage like right. a lot of risk and stuff like that to manage that you get with that cluster b that doesn't sort of fit as much with the cluster c personality disorders no it's kind of just stress but it doesn't come with the, you know, harming other people, harming themselves, yeah. that sort of you intensity. Know, and, and this kind of like the conditional beliefs mean that they are, if their world is sort of set up okay, mm. they're probably, you know, going to tick along okay. Mm. People might get a bit irritated with them and that kind of stuff, but it's probably, you know, could be balanced, mm. if that makes sense. Yeah. So shall I go into therapy? Absolutely. So what we're going to do is we're going to talk about therapy with this group and then we'll uh, take a break. Mm-hmm. The So I'm going to talk about therapy 
traps, so traps in therapy, difficulties in therapy, and Amy's going to talk a bit more about how you might go about therapy. What was interesting is they said, oh, good prognosis mm. for this yeah, disorder. Yeah, I the same thing. I, I, for some reason, I thought that, that was surprising. But anyway, I guess that kind of comes from perhaps experience with one or two people where I was, I was just like banging my head against the wall, mm. like trying to let's make some change yeah, here. find a way in. And when they just were, you know, dependent on your advice, mm. uh, I think. But maybe that was particular to those one or two people. Mm. So they talk about sort of like, as we mentioned at the top of the show, you know, with social Individuals with social systems intact, most wouldn't seek therapy. Mm. Others are already meeting their needs. And so really they're likely to present when something in their social world has gone awry mm. versus say other, you know, say borderline would perhaps present because of self-harm yeah. or chronic instability and mm. that kind of stuff. So dependents are likely highly motivated to stay in therapy. Yeah. This is a great kind of quote, you know, beginning therapists who've been dealing with other complex presentations might think that a dependent personality patient is like the dream client. Yeah. Like yeah. they they turn up, yeah. they're attentive. They do their homework. They listen, they do yeah. their homework. Yeah. You know, they are very happy to have the therapist as a surrogate caretaker mm. who listens, who counteracts the guilt, um, who's strong and authoritative. Yeah. When, uh, and, and it perfectly fits the yeah. relational pattern that's comfortable. Yeah, that's exactly mm. right. The dependent is ready to trust and talk and the therapist is ready to listen. Mm. So the problem in this with all personality disorders is that therapy can then just replicate the dysfunctional patterns mm. outside of therapy. Yeah. So as a therapist, you would want to break that. Yeah, you like, want to stir things up a little. You want to, Yeah, essentially you want to stir things up. Mm. But I would imagine it would be difficult to... It might be difficult to pick that up mm. if you're not looking out for it. Yeah. So the trap, desire to please is a barrier. You know, they'll talk when required, listen when required, and they'll follow instructions, right? Mm. But are they really there? Mm. You know, it was a very succinct section. They talked about, you know, the therapist can become directive. The patient gives up responsibility for direction and progress, overtly or covertly gives positive feedback. Mm -hmm. The therapist then feels powerful. And feels like they're actively curing their patient. Mm -hmm. They get this delusion that that's what's going on. Yeah. And the pattern just repeats. And so it suggests that therapists who uh, have narcissistic elements to themselves mm -hmm. or those with strong maternal needs are particularly vulnerable to this pattern. Hmm. You can uh, see that. Yeah. Yeah. So... You know, the latter, this, the mo strong maternal needs, the interpersonal pull has become even more supportive than usual towards your client. Mm. The dependent makes a transition from lonely orphan to adopted child. Yeah, yeah. You know, and, and I've certainly have seen that in other therapists mm. where you can kind of pick up in, I've, I've heard of it in case conferences and things like that mm. where there's an outside therapist who's been involved with, with a patient that's coming to yeah. whatever clinic and you're like, what is this relationship mm. going on? Like, why is this therapist so heavily involved? Mm. I mean, I guess it maybe speaks to the the training that I had where there was, we had a lot of strict boundaries sort of yeah. enforced. I've us. certainly heard the same thing where you kind of, it's it's both the tone of talking about the client and then also the lengths that have been gone to to sort of make things comfortable or to help out when there's been some sort of issue crop up and you sort of... It feels over-involved if you're used to working within a boundary. Yeah. So, I mean, like, to, to give kind of a concrete example, like, you know, there's a difference between if you have a client who's not doing well mm. and you schedule, say, some phone follow-up yeah. 
in between the sessions mm. and it's kind of agreed that that's what you're doing. Yeah. And there's a, a bit more of a, you're in a bad place. When you're in a bad place, I'm going to actively follow you up a mm. bit more. It's a bit more deliberate. Yeah. Versus say calling the doctor for you. Yeah. Or, and not just on a, like a one-off a regular occasion, mm. but like a multiple occasions mm. or kind of, I can't think, can you think of other examples? Yeah, the, the ones I can think of are mainly around kind of accessing services or help when perhaps in ordinary circumstances you might help the client to be able to do that. Yeah. Say they've got a physical issue as well as something sort of psychological going on. Yeah. Instead of going, it sounds like you really need to speak to your GP or and your ha- physio. And how, and how might you and how do might that? And how might you do that? And what well, do you think they need to know? What gets in the way of you going back to your physio, that sort yeah. of thing? Instead, calling up the physio and saying, you need to call my client and make this appointment or this is what they need or kind of just taking it a little bit further than what you normally would yeah. or what you might do for another client. And I think that's often the benchmark. Like you might work in a particular way, but... Yep. If you're doing something more for one client yep. than or what if, you do for other consistently. Or if your colleague is doing something more. For, yeah. 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 Then it, that's always so interesting. That's sort of what is it about this relationship that's different to Why do you feel the clients? need to do this stuff for yeah. that person? Yeah. But I feel like that one, like that example as well, also goes along with borderline often as that kind of mm. eliciting help thing. It's just a different way of doing it you might notice a similar pattern in no, therapists no, of that more sort of hovering checking or facilitating things in a bit more yeah 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 so i mean my experience really has been that it's frustrating work mm. like because you, you kind of like expecting them to make change but they don't mm. you know or you kind of like so what do you think you should do or where do you want to go like what's your goal for therapy or blah 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 blah, blah. Mm. and they kind of don't answer, can't give it to you. Mm. And whenever you're, you can get frustrated depending on the personality that you are as, mm. a, as a therapist, but you might get frustrated with it's like, you know, like, like why isn't this changing? What's yeah. going on? Um, and then you could probably, this is my own thoughts, like you could run the risk of rejecting the client mm. and re- reinforcing, reinforcing the same thing, reinforcing those negative beliefs. Mm. Yeah. So, and that would be detrimental. Yeah. yeah. Definitely. So what, what did you have? So in terms of therapy approaches, uh, the focus is a little bit like what you spoke about in sort of finding the middle of the seesaw. So, you know, minimising weaknesses and drawing on strengths to bring things into balance a little bit more. So not trying to eradicate the pattern entirely, but kind of bringing it more towards the style end than the disorder Mm. end. There was a lot about using the therapeutic relationship as a way of changing things. So using sort of interpersonal approaches to be able to try and shift shift that dynamic. So from the start, it needs to be acknowledged that the purpose of therapy is to outgrow the relationship. So in and of itself, that's a threatening prospect to someone who wants a stable person yeah. around. The thing I always say is to make the therapist redundant. Mm, yeah, exactly. Which is quite threatening as a therapist. Yeah. To think about like... Yeah, it's different to... Other relationships yeah. or other... Yeah, because sometimes you, you you want to see it through yeah. and then, like, you feel your client succeeding and pulling away. Mm. And you go, no, 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 back. I'm not done yet. <laughs> I'm not done yet. <laughs> we still have stuff to do. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, it is interesting. So the focus is on relating to the client in a way that induces autonomy. From this perspective, therapeutic tasks can include things like exposure, so gradually trying out anxiety-provoking situations or gradually sort of, you know, learning how to assert yourself at work or say that your coffee order's wrong or things like that that kind mm-hmm. of test it out. Role-playing and modelling independent living skills, so quite practical. Uh, assertiveness training and then group therapy was the other thing that, mm-hmm. that came up as well of creating relationships with multiple supportive other people and managing the dynamics in a group as a way to build those skills. Uh, and then interpersonal approaches can be interesting integrated with cognitive techniques to challenge that black and white thinking and all the cognitive strategies should focus on engaging the client in more active problem solving so anytime that it feels like it's shifting towards a more passive approach to Mm. an issue then trying to bring it back to that what can you do what are the steps that you can take yeah i mean and i kind of my instant thought around it would be it's like well if you had someone that you were looking after, how would you advise them about mm. how to go about this yeah. stuff? You know, that kind of yeah. that kind of way. Or how have you seen other people go about it? Mm. Do you reckon you could give that a go? Yeah. Um, Drawing on those, that perspective. Yeah. Yeah, to inform it. Yeah. I mean, it'd be, it'd be very, I think there'd be a difficult line to not want to tell them what to do. Absolutely. All the time. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. It'd be quite tricky. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Depending on what it was. Yeah. Yeah. Because because yeah. a, a an important role of a therapist is actually sometimes is actually to give advice mm. and to kind of go, do you really think that's a good idea? Or actually maybe the way that you should do it would be this way. This way, yeah. Particularly if someone is not skilled. Mm. Yeah, to kind of provide options. The same way you would with kids of kind of going, here are some options of how people do things. Yeah. Yeah. What if you tried this one? That yeah, sort of thing. Yeah. yeah. The other part of the work is exploring the roots of the dependence. So they speak about taking a psychodynamic stance on this. I immediately thought of, you know, schema stuff and other kind of interpersonal stuff that you yeah. could do as well. Essentially understanding how this developed, how those early relational patterns then created ongoing issues. Yeah. See, I would say straight up I give them the young schema questionnaire three. Yeah. And then have a feedback session about which, which schemas came up mm. and then getting them to tell me where that come from. Yeah, that's, exactly. That's how I would do it. Yeah, me too. Or just a downward arrow. Mm. So downward arrow is this cognitive technique where you ask this repetitive set of questions yeah. from an anxious thought and say, well, you know, what's so bad about that? Mm. And if that statement was true, what would that say about you? Yeah. What's so bad about that? Yeah. If the statement's true. And so you get down to this core belief, what, mm. what I was talking about before. And you then know, go the, from there. Yeah. yeah. And so well, where does that come from? Yeah. Yeah. And the last thing is that because these clients often, you know, come across as the ideal clients, they can make what seems like really rapid progress. Yeah. And but then this should be checked and kind of consolidated at the time when you think it's time to terminate the relationship. Because what can often happen is as it's getting closer to that time, then that provokes an increase in symptoms. And so things kind of regress a little bit and you can easily get caught in a cycle of kind of, okay, we need to address these symptoms, then we get close to termination again and then, oh, they're here, we need to address these symptoms, Mm. we get close to termination and keep on looping. So it's being really aware of managing things so that you're not stuck in that feedback loop. 
Yeah. Mm. I mean, it'd be interesting to, like, you might not pick that up straight away, mm. but then it might be interesting to sort of say, well, look, we've done this a couple of times now. Yeah. We've cycled through. What do you think's going on? Yeah. And then that's some really interesting work could happen. Yeah. How can we do this differently? Yeah. Mm. Uh, generally, the way that I do stuff is I will, if I've been working with someone for a long period of time, I'll taper out sessions. Yeah, like me too. From a week to two weeks, from two weeks to, 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 to four month, weeks. Yeah. yeah. And then do month a couple of times and then mm. wrap it up. Yeah. So. Yeah. So that's treatment. Yeah. So, you know, cracking open that dichotomous thinking, mm. catastrophization, really. Yeah. And kind of skills building, I guess. Yeah. And essentially, like, they really emphasize that you couldn't just do one part of it, that you really, you couldn't just look at the roots of these patterns and then let it go. You couldn't just do skills building. You need yeah. to kind of address each one of these elements. And then the prognosis is is good but it was interesting it was the most sort of positively framed treatment section i've read around a personality disorder i think <laughs> you know often it's kind I'm so of skeptical emphasizes like, the challenges it's so, so interesting like i'm yeah. so skeptical about that but yeah but it's maybe maybe it would work yeah shall we take a break let's take a break we will be back you've been listening to drink spot but as we try to widen and make more consistent our description of what we see. As it gets wider and wider and we see a greater range of phenomena, the explanations become what we call laws instead of simple explanations. So this is Hunter's favourite part of the show, where on a regular basis I torture him with inane chit-chat and fits of giggles. Look, what, what goes to the pod is a snapshot of the mocking and laughter that <laughs> occurs in the break section of this pod. Yeah, yeah. So I'm going to try and contain myself <laughs> just, today. Let's, let's just get to it. <laughs> so this is the part of the pod where we say thank you very much for listening. Uh, we really appreciate all of you out there listening to us, sending us comments, all those kind of things. Uh, and we would like more. We're greedy that way. Uh, so could you please... <laughs> what? You can't just reframe it in a positive frame. I, I think I can. Okay. I'm a psychologist. <laughs> You're not going to. Good. <laughs> so please uh, subscribe, tell people about it, give us five-star reviews on whatever podcast app you're using uh you can also get in touch with us and tell us things that we need to talk about or correct us if we've made any mistakes mm. or just say nice things to us you're really seeking and you really have like a need for affection yeah i think i want it written down i, I quite like letters i miss letters and <laughs> so i'll take email to shrinkspod and gmail.com or tweets we are at two shrinks pod or you can visit our website, see the stuff we've been up to, read a bit about us, put a face to the respective names, all of those good stuff. Although, I don't know. like You don't want them to look at your page? No, no, no. But have you ever looked at people's faces when you've heard them on the radio and mm. stuff like that? It's, Some of them really fit and other people you kind of like, no. It's manifestly disappointing. Yeah, that voice does not go with that head. Yeah, that's yeah. <laughs> So you check out our heads. <laughs> I suspiciously look like Brad Pitt in my profile picture on the website. Uh, how odd. And it's kind of got like a movie background and yeah, a kind it's of like, also a, like a little um, a club where we'd like do boxing and stuff like that. Yeah. Oh, right. Is that why you're shirtless? Yeah, that's it. Yeah. Uh, yeah, we can't talk about that. The <laughs> <laughs> vaccine. <laughs>
this segment is things we came across where we talk about an article or something interesting that's caught our eye. Usually it's a something that we've found in the literature search accidentally. You know, those articles that always look much more interesting. Usually this is a uh, pretty lighthearted segment and I'll get to a lighthearted part of mine, but I did actually want to start off on a, a fairly sort of serious note. Um, I wanted to take a moment to mention my admiration for Dr. Christine Blasey Ford. She's a research psychologist in the United States and works for Stanford University and Palo Alto University. So she recently gave testimony at the United States Senate Judicial Committee regarding Judge Brett Kavanaugh, who'd been nominated and is now uh, being confirmed to the Supreme Court of the United States. If you don't know what happened, she gave testimony saying that she had been sexually assaulted by Judge Kavanaugh. And I wanted to say, as someone who's worked with countless women who've been victims of sexual assault and rape, that I just think that she was just so, so brave. She was so, so poised and eloquent. And regardless of your political leanings, it should be absolutely clear that she did a great service to other victims of sexual assault, you know, quitting herself so well. I, If it would mean me or if it had been a friend or a relation... I would never have been able to expect anyone to compose herself so well. And in an era where we doubt the words of women who've been sexually assaulted, yep. I, I think she just did such an amazing thing. And it's been a great, it's been great to see uh, such a outpouring of support for her and such a sharing of sexual assault stories mm. and really heightening the awareness in the community about such an awful, awful problem that's happened. So if you're getting angry at what I'm saying and if you doubt her story, just let me relate to you that in my experience as a clinician where I have just, I've worked with so many, every, every single job I've worked in, you might not think a cancer psychologist would work with sexual it's assault, everywhere. but <laughs> it comes up in my clinic time and time again. Yeah, I have only ever had, I've been working about 10 years, I've only ever had one or two, maybe three patients that have ever gone to the police mm. about their sexual assault. Yeah. And usually it's at around the time and it's because there was some clear evidence or there's some kind of really, really supportive circumstances around them disclosing that. Mm. The, the Over 90% of the women who I've worked with have not disclosed yeah. that. And so... I think for someone to come forward, when someone comes forward, we should listen to them mm. and believe them. So as a final word to try and lift the mood a little bit before I go into something <laughs> a bit more lighthearted, the, in the media mess, and it was really just such a mess, it was mm. just awful. I don't know if you followed it, Amy, but... Yeah, it was overwhelming with the amount of sort of different perspectives and arguments and pulling everything apart. Yeah, and yeah. yeah. And look... You know, we're not a politics podcast and we, we're not going to pretend to be. So, no. um, But in the media mess that went on, her academic achievements had just, I don't, they were not mentioned. So I wanted to spend just a, a minute just reading the titles of just a couple of her research mm -hmm. projects because there's a really impressive list. She, I think she's involved in designing statistical models for research projects, yeah. which I can say <laughs> is really hard. It is. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's, it can be really, really complicated. So, so some of the more recent papers that she's been involved in, one of them cognitive testing to identify children with ADHD who do and do not respond to methylphenidate, mm -hmm. anxiety-related disorders and concealment in sexual minority young adults, 
depression subtypes in predicting antidepressant response, detecting critical decision points in psychotherapy and psychotherapy medication for chronic depression, and the relationship between therapeutic alliance and treatment outcome in two distinct psychotherapies for chronic depression. Mm. So I I look at that list and go, they are some very interesting and serious psychological topics. There's a lot of psych research that I think is, you know, uh, on the edges of mm. of stuff, but this is like core, yeah. core good work. Yeah. So I just wanted to take a moment to think about Dr. Ford. So yeah, do you want to hear about my light? Let's let's turn things a bit lighter. Okay. <laughs> Have you ever had to supply a photograph for a resume? Uh, once. And what what did you do? Uh, well, so it was for a. Academic application was it for the Kling course? Yeah. It was, yeah. Uh, and so I I chose a photo that was kind of me dressed up going somewhere, but looked like me. Yeah. And in fact, when I went to the interview, I handed over my paper copy of my resume and my photo, and the panel laughed because you were in the same outfit. No. And it was quite disconcerting, as you can imagine, being quiet. <laughs> <Yes>. Yep. <laughs> and they said to me, this is our third day of interviewing and you're the first person to provide a photo that actually looks like them. Yeah, right. <laughs> yep. <laughs> they said everyone else had gone for kind of like um, professional looking photos or ones where they kind of looked windswept or out on a big <laughs> night or were 10 years old or... <laughs> It had not gone well for yeah, them. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. Well, so the paper by uh, Sebastian Fernandez and colleagues, which is published in Personality Individual Differences last year, 2017, mm-hmm. it tackles the interesting topic of does your resume photograph tell you who you are? Mm. So they... Uh, they say, to date, no research has examined if people leave valid cues of their personality in resume photographs, mm. which sounds like a bit esoteric, but actually considering that, you know, applying for jobs and stuff is such a big, important yeah. thing. Have you ever put a photo on apart from the Probably course? just the clinical course, and I can't remember what photograph it was. Yeah. So I wonder if you were interviewed before or after me. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think I think I think we had to do it. So. We did have to do it, but I'm just wondering whether your photo looked like you or not. <laughs> oh God, I don't know. Yeah. So this research examined what, to what extent ex- resume photographs provide accurate information about the personality traits of their owner. Mm-hmm. So they got. 97 individuals, Mm -hmm. 47 males, 47 females, doing a bachelor course. And they got them to provide a photograph and do a personality inventory Mm -hmm. on themselves, but then also do a peer report version um, of others. I think it wasn't quite clear to me. They seem to correlate the self-reports and the peer reports, although I've got to say like 0.3 to 0.5, so lowish. Yeah. Correlations. Mm -hmm. Anyway, what they did, so the personality inventory, Mm -hmm. and then they got two people coding their resumes, their resume photographs, on whether that was colour or not, whether the background was neutral Mm -hmm. or not. Background neutral or background, say, like at home or outdoors, smiling, and that was like from one to seven, so from not at all to a lot, and professional attire. (laughs) It's a degree of creepiness of smile. (laughs) (laughs) Creepiness was not one of the factors. Um, (laughs) And professional attire. Don't you hate that when you like, you go, I like, do a smile. And like, normally I'm really good, like on a smile, on command, photograph wise. And then just the other day, I just, I couldn't do it. Yeah. I just like, oh, come on. Like too many teeth, not enough teeth. Anyway. 
and professional attire. So like not at all. So back onto the attire thing that we talked about in one <laughs> of the pods. So basically they found like a whole lot of relationships between personality traits and aspects of the photographs. Mm-hmm. So they showed that people who pose with a neutral background tended to score higher in agreeableness than conscientiousness. Yep. So they seem to think that maybe these are people who are most likely to conform to expectations of a resume photograph because mm. that's what they want to look more purposeful and please the recruiter. Yep. On the contrary, it's possible that individuals score lower on unconscientiousness and agreeableness, prefer to take the first photograph that they had in their possession, <laughs> end quote. Smiling was correlated with positively with extroversion. So, and that, that's sort of like a finding I think that's found elsewhere. Basically, extroverts are more likely to be in a good mood than introverts. Yeah. And if you're in a good mood, you're more likely to smile. So, mm. it's not too complicated. Yeah. And contrary to what they thought, professional attire was not related to conscientiousness. Okay. But they seemed to think that maybe that was a sample effect because it was like a, hosp- a hospitality management school. Right. So they had a strict dress code or something like that. Okay, yeah. So basically the way you look in your resume photograph sort of fits with your personality. Fits with your personality. Science. Yeah. Science, Amy. I do, I do wonder about what people include in those photos like it's not really the dumb thing in psychology to put a photo no. on a resume no but i know a couple of people who have been trying to recruit for senior positions and there's been some odd photos submitted <laughs> ones that you kind of go like why are you putting the photo of you on the beach yeah on this because what I, is the purpose of this yeah because i i, I originally was like oh yeah like this is a bit of a laugh yeah and then uh, and the more i think about it the more that like Actually, you probably can tell. Mm. It's probably more the extreme photos that that, yeah. that tell you something. You go, no, need to rule that one out. It's like, oh, this okay. one's in or this one's out. Yep. <laughs> yep. 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 She's got an empty bottle of wine next to her and she looks a little fuzzy. But that's it. even the same if you've had to read people's cover letters. Mm. It's like short and sharp people, short and sharp. Yep. That's, all, that's all you need to do. Anyway, yep. where are you taking us? <laughs> Um, I'm I'm picking up the baton and going back to Survivor. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so um, people who have been listening to this before will know that Nantra and I have been compulsively watching Australian Survivor, which has just finished, yep. and I couldn't let it go yet. Now, why would you want to? Exactly. So I'm not sure whether you're going to follow this up next week with one. We'll see what happens. <laughs> It's the sort of nail-biting conclusion to next week's pod. (laughs) (laughs) But so today I've gone for a book chapter. Yeah. Actually, before I I tell you the title, I have a quick question. Mm -hmm. Why do you watch Survivor? Why do I watch Survivor? Yeah. I I think it's... There's something about it that is just very interesting. Mm. Like, I think think it's intriguing to think about how I would go in that in that environment, I think is probably mm. the part of it that I find interesting. Yeah. And then I like the way that things shift and then people kind of move around. I think the most interesting part of it is when, you know, you have a group of people working together and then the next time or they're their enemies and then the next time they all work together. Yeah. I find that really interesting. The social element. Yeah, but like it's not just like but it's it's the social the alliances and the, yeah, but yeah. like the, how it all shifts and how people play and work together, and yeah. I, there's something about it I find just really intriguing. So you 
fit with the authors of this paper. They yep. thought the same thing, that the reason why people really get into it is about watching those relationships develop, change, yep. shift. And so, I, And I just wonder how I, like, how I would face it. Yeah, yeah if you're cool. in that situation. Yeah. yeah. So the chapter is called Do You Know Who Your Friends Are? An analysis of voting patterns and alliances on the reality TV show Survivor. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> by, by Hayes and Dunbar in a book called Reality Television, Merging the Global and the Local from 2010. So they spoke about how voting in Survivor serves as a social tool to work out who has power, who to trust, things like that. Mm-hmm. And people with higher trust tend to have higher social capital. So it's quite kind of valued to be trusted mm-hmm. in Survivor. So what they did was that they wanted to look at a range of different research questions, which I'll go through. They did this by looking at the record of voting patterns. Apparently you can see not just the votes that are displayed in the footage Mm -hmm. at the end of each episode, but you can see who everyone voted for on the official websites. Wow. Yeah. So they looked at that. They also looked at detailed show summaries that were on fan sites. Did you know there was a Survivor wiki? I'm sure there is, yeah. Yep. Uh, yeah, because on the most recent American Survivor, yeah. one of the characters, uh, one of the individuals on it, she's like, you know, I want to go out and find an idol because women are underrepresented. Yeah, she cited the in, stats. In finding idols and said like 15% of idols have been found by women. I'm like, someone's done the stats. Yeah. Absolutely. So they wanted to look at this and examine the reasons why people were voted out. Yeah. Yeah. So their aims were, and sort of research questions were, does voting with the majority predict where someone will place? Why are people voted out? How important are first impressions in creating friendships and alliances? How important is winning immunity and and reward challenges to players' success? And what role do a bunch of demographic variables play in determining their success? Is this the point where the pod becomes like two hours? Yeah. (laughs) Okay, sorry. It's actually actually quite succinct. I was quite surprised because I read through all those questions and then went, oh, have I bitten off more than I can chew? (laughs) Yeah, good. So they looked at 15 seasons. And so they looked at the official website, the Wikipedia page for, for Survivor, episode guides and a fan-based Survivor wiki. And they only included seasons where strangers were playing against one another. So nothing with returning players because yep. they figured they could have learnt about the social element. Yeah. Results were that voting with the majority was a significant predictor for success in the game. Reasons for being voted out, there were 220 reasons been used across the 15 seasons top themes were having no strong alliance almost a third of people were voted out because of that uh seen as a threat was the next one down with 14 percent personality clashes 10.9 percent being seen as a liability in challenges or to the tribe it was 10.5 percent the least often cited theme was found in one percent of cases two people were voted out for stealing or hiding food (laughs) (laughs) which i quite like in terms of first impressions, they looked at when someone was first voted for in the order of seasons, with the idea being that the earlier this was in in the game, the worse your first impression was. Yeah, right. Yeah. And so receiving a first vote later on was related to success. So yeah. it was a bit well, it of a first sense impression. Really, it? Like it's not that yeah. complicated. What's your hunch about immunity? Do you reckon? I think immunity is problematic. Yeah, do you reckon it would mean that you had more success in the game, less? I think it depends on when it comes. Mm. Yeah. Sort of like 
it's after merge. Yeah. And then in those couple of weeks, the couple of things after merge, if you get immunity, then I think you become a target mm. at that point. So interestingly, they found that immunity was not related to success yeah, right. in the game. So either in when you were voted out or how many jury votes you got was unrelated to how many immunities you'd won or whether you'd won any. Yeah, right. Whereas winning rewards was related to a longer time in the game. Huh. And that was any rewards, not just individual, but the yeah, team right. ones as well. Maybe it's just food. Yeah, yeah. Um, or whether it's about that relationship. Yeah, the that tra- then you're like building up, Yeah, you're building up that alliance. I wonder with the I wonder with the getting immunity that there's a group where there's a like what I was saying, there's a Yeah, peri- there's a cost. There's a pe- there's a period of yeah. time where it's it's problematic. Mm. And this period of time where it can be helpful yeah. and they kind of balance each other out. And that's yeah. perhaps why you wouldn't see that a could clear be pattern. Yeah. 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 And then the last bit was that, you know, they looked at a whole bunch of different demographics. So gender, age, race, marital status, occupation and regional home. Uh, and they found only two things out of that were related to success. So white participants received fewer elimination votes throughout the game. So if you added them all up across... Mm. the season mm-hmm. than African-Americans or Asian-Americans. And one finding that they couldn't make sense of was that those from the West and Midwest of America received more votes than those from the South or Northeast. Mm-hmm. And they have no idea why. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. So there you go. I feel like now we have a better chance at predicting who's voted out. Oh, we have statistics on our side. Stats. <laughs> <laughs> we need to chart this. <laughs> <laughs> And I'm just going to fade you down. <laughs> <laughs> so I think that's it from us. Yeah. So don't forget to rate, review the show. Thanks so much for listening. Our final personality disorders pod will be on obsessive compulsive personality disorder, which we, we've previously done an episode on, but it's, the next one will be a little bit different to the one, that one. Mm. And uh, it should be fun. Yeah. We'll see you next time. See you.